It really is a privilege to sit up here and see you all, feel you all really more than see you. Just connecting to the energy of your practice. It is so inspiring to have the privilege to get to spend so much of my year with people who really want to look at their hearts, their minds, to explore what it means to understand what's happening and to purify, to move in the direction of love and compassion and equanimity and joy and to begin to release the tendency to move towards greed, aversion, delusion. It's a rare thing in this world, what you're doing. Tonight I'd like to talk about some of the uh, mind states the difficult energies that tend to get in our way, that we tend to get caught in and struggle with as we practice. The Buddha highlighted five particularly challenging mental energies that tend to unsettle our minds, to get in the way of concentration. And those are the five hindrances, sense desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt. Anybody experiencing those? They manifest in so many different forms they can be very obvious, screamingly obvious. Get me out of here. That can range from a really strong energy to a very subtle form. Each of these hindrances has a range of strength. Along the line of aversion, it might go from that strength of screaming rage or anger or fear all the way down to the subtlest kind of, not that, or a kind of, yeah, I can put up with that. Not in a kind of a balanced way, but just a kind of a, slightly resistant way. And wherever you are in the course of your retreat, whether you're at the beginning of your retreat or halfway through a three-month course, these energies will be arising. And they are worth being familiar with in both their subtle and obvious forms. Because they tend to represent 
the edges of our practice. When they are arising, there's something that's asking to be seen, something that's asking to be known. The the word hindrance gives us the sense that, or just that word, the translation of the Pali Nivarana, which I think literally means something like covering. And it's often translated as hindrance and The Buddha does speak of these qualities of mind as getting in the way of concentration in certain forms. And that that word tends to make us perhaps have a sense of, all right, how do I get rid of these? How do I figure out how not to have these come up? After all, if they're hindrances, we should want to not have them. That's kind of the way we relate to that word, hindrance. And yet, in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, in the Buddhist meditation instructions, the list of these energies is right in there as a way we can cultivate mindfulness and wisdom. When we shift our perspective on these states of mind. We explore what it means to be curious about them, understand them, rather than be lost in them or believe them. Instead of hindering our path, they actually are the uh, the the way our, our practice can deepen. You may not believe me. I certainly didn't believe the teachers when they talked about, yes, you can, you can be mindful of aversion and it really doesn't matter what you're mindful of. If you're mindful with this curiosity, with a kind of a a wise attitude, then it doesn't matter whether aversion is arising or sound is arising. And I thought, well, they're just saying that to be nice or something like that, you know. I, I, I went through a large part of my practice believing that if the hindrances were arising, I was doing something wrong and I needed to figure out how to get rid of them. But it really wasn't until I um, began to kind of open to them as as teachers. They really are teachers for us. They point out places where we have something to learn. Often these hindrances are experienced as suffering. They're experienced as dukkha. They're unpleasant often. And the Buddha's instructions for us around suffering is In the first noble truth, he said, there is suffering. And when suffering is arising, we understand suffering is arising. And our task around this 
arising is to understand it. Not in an intellectual way, but in an experiential way. So this is, this is our work, our practice around these difficult states to explore what does it mean to open to them, to understand them in an experiential way. I think the other morning I spoke about having a stance of a naturalist in our receptive awareness as we explore meeting our experience, receiving our experience, rather than going out and trying to figure out what's going on, having this stance of a naturalist where we we kind of sit quietly and watch what's happening around us or feel into what's happening around us. As a naturalist in the world, the naturalist doesn't tries to not get in the way of the natural unfolding, but to simply witness it. That can kind of be our exploration in observing all of our experience, including the hindrances. One um, language, a kind of language I like to explore in this receptive stance, and particularly around the hindrances, is the language of being with experience. What does it mean to be with anger or frustration or desire or sleepiness or restlessness or doubt? To me the, that language of being with is, is supportive in my own experience. It may or may not be for you, so check it out. See if it's supportive for you to think about What does it mean to be with experience? There's a difference between being with aversion and being averse. We know this difference. We understand, we we recognize a kind of shift that can happen when we explore Shifting from being averse, when we are being averse, we're caught in the midst of that difficult state. And we might be able to shift into, oh, aversion is happening. That's a kind of a being with. Aversion is happening. That shift, there's a vast difference between being averse and being with aversion between being averse and understanding aversion is happening. And there is a a kind of space that is created around the experience when we understand that shift. So in that place where we can be with experience, that's a space where we can begin to be curious about what does it mean to know the human experience of this difficult state. And this exploration of the human experience is another way I like to think about exploring the hindrances in general. The hindrances are human experiences. You are not alone when you experience them. 
the causes and conditions that arise in your mind that lead to hindrances, very similar patterns are going on in everyone's mind. It's not just you. And so what it might it mean to, to look at it as a human experience rather than my anger, my aversion, my sleepiness? James Baraz has a, a fun way to explore this perspective of being with and being a naturalist about our experience, especially around difficulty. He, um, he says, there were times in my practice where I decided I would, I would pretend I was an alien that took up residence in this human body. And my job as that alien, was to report back to the mothership what it was like to be in a human being. This is what it's like when they feel anger. This is what it's like when they feel happiness. This is what it's like when they feel sleepiness. It kind of is a a humorous way, perhaps a light-hearted way to, to put us into that stance of Curiosity about the human experience of these states of mind. And so as we meet the meet uh, hindrances in this it, from this stance, as we meet experience from this stance, hindrances are no longer hindrances. They just become another experience that can be known, that can be understood, and around which wisdom and understanding can arise. So I'd like to take a little bit of time with each of the five to offer some thoughts and suggestions about uh, working with each of them. Actually, more what I'd like to explore is ways that I found help me to meet these experiences, open to them, explore them with mindfulness, so that they aren't something that I'm battling with, trying to somehow get rid of them, but I'm curious about what is the experience of sense desire? How does it work in a human being? And so I'll take some time to go, go through each of these five Sense desire, a desire to have sense pleasure, very natural, as Greg mentioned the other day. It's a, it's a natural movement. We all move in that direction towards surrounding ourselves with things that feel comfortable, things that feel pleasant. Being, having comfortable things around us, having pleasant experience is not in itself particularly an issue. But what happens is that our mind begins to orient towards having to have things in a certain way, trying to construct our lives such that they're a string, like we're stringing um, um, beads on a string pleasant moment after pleasant moment after pleasant moment. And if we miss and don't get a pleasant moment in there, we feel like we've done something wrong. And so we are driven by this desire, this urge 
to uh, satisfy that wish for pleasant experience. And as, as Greg said the other day, you know, this kind of pleasantness, this kind of having pleasant experience, it's a form of happiness, and the Buddha spoke about that. He, he said it's not particularly, uh, th- that kind of happiness isn't a, a problem. But he did point to it's a lesser kind of happiness. The happiness of concentration, the happiness of understanding, the happiness of release, the happiness of equanimity, of being okay with things as they are, much deeper forms of happiness. And we do have to explore what it means to let go of this lesser happiness in order to move ourselves in the direction of this greater happiness. And so we are driven by this desire, this wish, this wanting to surround ourselves with pleasant experience. And again, it's not the pleasant experience that's inherently a problem, but this this wish, the wanting, to have it be a certain way. This is what we need to look at. The energy of desire kind of keeps us out of the present moment when we're not aware of it. When we're not present for desire as it's arising, we're kind of believing or buying into desire. We believe we have to fulfill desire. The story of desire is, I need this thing, this experience, this um, state of mind in order to be happy. That's the, that's the belief that is behind desire. And when we're caught by desire, when we're in that belief, it's like we're, we, we do not see any other possibility than satisfying that desire. So the first exploration around desire is to see if we can recognize desire is happening instead of being body, instead of be, buying into the belief of desire. So that, that takes a little bit of a, a kind of a step back. One of the first explorations when we recognize that desire is happening is to see if we can maybe take a step back from the thing we're desiring. You know, when, when desire is running rampant, our attention is on the thing that we want. That cookie, that state of mind, that fantasy, that state of life. Our minds are kind of pulled out thinking about how great it's going to be when that happens or when we get that thing. So our minds are projecting forward, not in the present moment, not aware of what's happening in the present moment, and not particularly aware of the experience of desire itself. Because the the story of desire is putting us into the future where we would have that pleasant thing. And so sometimes we think that desire feels good because it's connected to the wanting of something pleasant. But if we take a step back, let go of putting the attention on the thing that we want and feel into the experience of desire itself, we quickly see that desire itself actually doesn't feel good. It's an unpleasant state. 
As soon as desire springs up, there's a feeling of lack in our system. As soon as there's desire, there's a feeling that something's off. It has to be fixed. It has to be changed. I need that thing. It really is this this pattern around desire that has us believing that getting that thing is what's necessary there. That's the story of desire. And some of the process by which desire unfolds, some of the reason why this is such a potent force for us, is that uh, when we get the thing that we want, you know, when we act on that desire and we get the thing that we want, there's some measure of happiness that comes from having that thing, that state, that, that experience. Some measure of happiness comes from the having of the pleasant. And at the same time, there's a measure of happiness that comes from the relief of that unpleasant wanting. And so we have both the release of an unpleasant and the uh, getting of a pleasant that is a very potent force in our minds. Desire believes that it has to get the thing that it wants in order to have that release. Desire is not going to tell you, well, if you just let go of wanting that thing, if you just explore the experience of desire and see desire disappear, that release will bring a deeper kind of happiness than the having of that thing. That's what's quite amazing as we step back, as we see if we can let go of having our attention in the thing that we are wanting and step into the feeling of desire. We feel into the, maybe the, the, the pull. Sometimes it feels like, a, if any of you are Star Trek fans, <laughs> a tractor beam, you know, kind of the pull to something. That's sometimes the feeling of desire. It's like, ooh, need to have that thing. Cookie, it's like the feeling the cookie is pulling. Cookie. That feeling is kind of a feeling of being off. There can be a physical sense. We can kind of come into the body and feel into the physicality of what it feels like to want something. There's a, a mind that, that feels kind of constricted and tight around that particular thing that we need. And so we can explore that state itself. What does that feel like? What is that experience? I have spent time, a lot of time on retreat, watching this experience. Sometimes as I watch it, commit myself to not follow through at times, not always, but sometimes I would pick something and say, okay, I'm not going to follow through on that. I'm just going to watch it. At one point I spent quite a bit of time watching the wanting to look at people, especially in walking meditation. You know, people walk by, I really want to see who's walking by, but I just decided I was going to explore the wanting instead. And that feeling of that pull to look at somebody, just watching that, not looking, but feeling that pull. And then watching as that person walked up the stairs of the front, of the front uh, door here and disappeared into the building. The wanting vanishes. 
seeing that wanting vanish in that moment was like being released from a vice grip. Really giving me the understanding of just how potent and how actually painful wanting is. And that that wanting didn't need the satisfaction of knowing who that was in order to be released. And so being curious about exploring, exploring wanting itself, letting go of the thing that we want, coming back, like stepping back, exploring the experience of wanting itself, seeing if you can let go of thoughts around wanting that particular thing. Let go maybe just means just not put so much attention in them. You may not be able to stop them, but see if you can connect with the the, the experience, the, the understanding the Buddha was talking about, the experience of wanting. In, in this exploration of meeting wanting, we need to have some discernment about when it might be um, where perhaps the wanting is stronger than our capacity to meet it with mindfulness. And then we need to learn some skillful means. And this is true with all the hindrances. There are times in uh, exploring them, and mostly what I'm going to be exploring this evening is how we might be with them, how we might explore being mindful of the hindrances. And yet there are always going to be times where the, the power of the hindrance is stronger than our capacity for mindfulness. It's almost like the hindrances is this swamping wave and our mindfulness is this trickle of a stream. And so we need to recognize that. You know, sometimes we might see trying to be with a particular desire, we just get pulled into the desire over and over again. Maybe that's not the time to try to be present with that. Maybe that's the time to step back to use another strategy, such as coming to your anchor, maybe consciously uh, putting your attention on something else, learning some skillful means, and also recognizing if, uh, you know, if it's, if the allowing is turning into a, um, hmm, indulging. You know, if we, if we are uh, looking at, okay, well, okay, so this, this fantasy is arising and I'm just going to explore being with this fantasy and, and watching the desire of this fantasy. And, you know, it's possible. We can do that. And we can also kind of just get into the fantasy. So we need some honesty in this exploration. Are we really exploring being with it or are we indulging it? The, um, sen- the hindrance of ill will. There's a lot of similarities in how ill will functions and how desire functions. Ill will has a range. Um, many states of mind are uh, in this terrain of ill will from irritation, resistance, anger, frustration, annoyance, hatred, uh, rage resentment, dislike, 
So a real range of states in this, in this hindrance of ill will. It's basically an aversion, a dislike of what's happening. And in this case, happiness, the, the story of aversion, is happiness depends on getting rid of this thing either through some kind of lashing out, a kind of you know, annihilation of movement to get rid of, or in the terrain of fear, getting myself out of the situation. That happiness will come if I get out of here. And so there's different flavors of this quality of ill will in, in our experience. Sometimes it has a quality of, of lashing out, sometimes a quality of feeling like, we withdraw. And so again, this pulls us away from the present moment when we're not aware of it by being oriented around trying to fix, change, uh, figure out how to get rid of things, figure out how for me to control something, figure out how to get myself out of a situation. And very similarly to desire, you know, as soon as it springs up, there's this feeling of necessity around uh, following through on the energy of ill will. I need to control this thing. I need to fix it to change it in order to be happy. And so again, the movement is very similar with desire. Whatever it is that we have that feeling of aversion about, maybe a, a a pain in the body, it may be what somebody else is doing, it may be a sound, it may be a mind state, it may be um, just what's happening, that you just feel like it's not the right thing at, the r- at this moment, it should be something else. See if you can take the attention out of what you don't want, don't like, and put it into that energy of aversion itself. How does that feel? What is that experience? Again, maybe feel it in the body. Does it feel like pushing it away? In my experience, the, the energy of aversion, kind of the, the nature of aversion, is to separate. Whether that separation comes through um, getting rid of something, kind of annihilating it, or whether it comes through moving myself out of it. So what is that state, being an alien? What is this experience of wanting to separate? Sometimes it feels like a contraction in the body, in the heart, around the heart, a closing down of the heart, a pressure. Sometimes it feels like heat and pressure, pushing away, lashing out, various flavors of what this experience feels like. Often a lot of thoughts come along with ill will. What, what somebody should have done, shouldn't have done, what I should have done, how I should have responded. Often a lot of thoughts come around with it. See again if you can take your mind out of the thoughts and into the experience. What is the actual experience of aversion? The thoughts are often a kind of fuel. And so if we're thinking about the thing we don't like, it's like our foot's on the gas pedal and we are revving up the 
uh, the, the emotion that's associated with those thoughts. If we don't like something, thinking about it, I really hate that thing. That's just such an awful thing. It, it's going to increase the aversion and the ill will, the experience of ill will. And so, again, taking the attention out of the thoughts, away from the thing that we're averse to, and coming into the experience of aversion itself. Now, it is an unpleasant experience. Aversion is an unpleasant experience. And sometimes we end up with aversion to aversion. Sometimes it can simply be, we may simply be able to recognize, oh yes, there's aversion and I don't like it. That's what's happening. Sometimes it can be that simple. And sometimes it, it has a kind of a snowball effect. It's, it's like the, uh, you know, we have aversion to aversion and we're, we have aversion to something and then we're angry at that aversion and then we get afraid of our anger and then we're frustrated by our fear and it's just this incredible uh, piling of reactivity, a multiple, multiple hindrance attack around aversion. Hindrance of hindrance of hindrance of hindrance. If it feels like when you explore what does it mean to, you know, take up residence, the alien, what does it feel like to be a human being that's experiencing aversion? And it feels like the aversion just runs out of control. Sometimes I use this analogy of going down the rabbit hole. Go down the rabbit hole of aversion. If that happens when you try to explore being present for aversion, that may not be the time to try to explore that. So again, there's some strategies that we can use to take our attention away from that and put it on something else. So one of my favorite things to do is, it's kind of like when that strong aversion arises and I recognize right now is not the time. Aversion is my favorite hindrance. It's uh, one that uh, I have spent a lot of time with. And uh, at one period of time, I was watching anger a lot and noticing that when I tried to be mindful of it, I would just go down that rabbit hole. And so when I noticed it coming up, I was like, I I would recognize it and I would bow to it. I'd say, ah, I see you, anger. And right now, you can stay in the room with me. You can can walk next to me, because I was often walking, like, I see you, and and I'm not going to try to stop you, but right now I'm going to put my attention in my feet. And I'm just going to pay attention to that so that it was a kind of a turning to something neutral without aversion, without resistance to that state, but also without repression. So it was a kind of a meet it, bow to it, not now, and I'm going to put my attention on something else in a very friendly way, you know, I see you. And you can hang out, you know, you can hang out with me, but but I'm going to put my attention someplace else. Just redirecting the attention to something neutral. May not be the breath as the, if it's a strong aversion attack, the breath may not be the best neutral experience because often with uh, a strong aversion attack, um, the breath is involved. Have you noticed if there's a lot of difficult emotion, how the breath can be ragged, how the breath can be involved in that emotion? And so picking something outside of this kind of core area of the body as a place to ground, hands, 
hearing, feet on the ground, something, something neutral and something simple can be really helpful as a, as a strategy. Sometimes I also find it helpful to, uh, to just kind of consciously broaden the container. If there's something like magnetizing the attention, especially something unpleasant, a pain in the body that just feels like the, the, the uh, mindfulness is just magnetized to it, then it's like that experience becomes your whole world. It's like you're, you know, it's like you're embedded in that place with that's the all there is. And so using some reminder that we know that that isn't all there is. That while the attention is kind of magnetized to that right now, there's also thousands of other things happening in the present moment. And so consciously broadening the container, maybe opening your eyes if you're in the hall and just recognizing, yes, there's that difficult state and the aversion, there's the pain and the aversion, and seeing is happening, and hearing is happening, going through the sense doors. Seeing's happening, hearing's happening. Body sense, oh, there's the aversion again. Okay, that's happening. And seeing's happening. Just keeping stretching the container to help um, the mind recognize that it doesn't have to just be stuck to that. This can be an action to begin to balance the mind if it's not so possible to just meet and be with the aversion as it is. And so this does take us, take some honesty again to recognize when we are overwhelmed and to use that wisdom to shift to a, a, a skillful means, a skillful strategy to balance the mind. The third of the hindrances, sloth and torpor. This is in the terrain of sleepiness, dullness, low energy, um, thick mind. Often the mind is not clear because of the low energy, because of dullness. And often the mind gets agitated around this state. Something like, you know, basically believing or thinking I can't meditate if I'm dull or sleepy. I have to fix this. I have to change this. And so what I'd like to explore here with you, and how many of you have had the thought, I'm too sleepy to meditate? Yeah? When you have that thought, if you're thinking that thought and you know you're thinking that thought, What I'd like to propose is if you can recognize that you're thinking that thought, I'm too sleepy to meditate, you actually have enough energy to know the experience of sleepiness itself or dullness itself, maybe just for a few moments. But you've already recognized sleepiness. You've already been aware of it. There's been a moment of noticing it, to have that thought. So this is a possibility I'd like to encourage. Often sleepiness, dullness, um, the experience feels unpleasant in meditation. Um, Partly because um, we're resisting it, perhaps. Sleepiness is this way usually, um, that if we 
uh, are resisting sleepiness, it feels really unpleasant. But if you decide to explore what is the actual experience, what's the human experience of sleepiness? That reporting back to the mothership, what's the human experience of sleepiness? You'll find it actually is very pleasant. There was one sitting where I finally realized, you know, th- uh, there's, there's just so much sleepiness here that this is all I can do is just be mindful of the sleepiness. And, um, and so I would, I would just feel into the... I was sitting up straight, and I encourage this when you're sleepy. Find a posture in which um, if you fall asleep, it will wake you up. You know, if you're sitting in a chair and you do this, it may not wake you up. Um, but so I was sitting up straight and um, I would feel into it and not resisting it, the body got very heavy, lots of pleasant sensations in the body. And then the mind went into this lovely like, ooh, you know, vibrating, pulsing, and then... <laughs> and that woke me up. And so I, okay, I sat up and I did it all over again. And, you know, it looks like this. <laughs> but the mindfulness was there for all but those <laughs> dropping moments. It actually was a very present sitting. And, and by, by the end of that sitting, actually, I had recognized, I had seen it enough. I had watched that process of dropping enough that I knew in the mind the moment before I was going to fall asleep. And instead of dropping, I just sat up a little straighter, which gave a little bit of energy. And then I'd relax and just do it all over again. And so then it ended up looking something like this. And again, quite a bit of mindfulness. One thing that happens with dullness and sleepiness is that we often have some idea about what we want to be paying attention to. We want to be with our breath. We want to be noticing sound. We want that clarity where everything is sharp and delightful and I know every single moment of experience. Having fogginess or dullness in the mind is kind of like um, having a mirror coated by steam. You know, the job of a mirror is to reflect experience, much as mindfulness reflects whatever is happening. The job of a mirror is to to reflect what's in the room. And if we're standing in front of that mirror and there's fog on the mirror... You know, maybe we can kind of see our, our shape, our outline of, of ourselves, and we, we may feel like, well, the mirror is not doing its job. But the mirror is doing its job perfectly. It's reflecting every drop of water on that mirror. It's just not doing the job we want it to do. And very similarly with sleepiness and dullness, 
Often our resistance to sleepiness and dullness is because when the mind is thick, when the mind is low energy, it's hard to direct the attention and pay attention to the breath. It's hard to notice other experience. Come in closer. Can you notice just the low energy reflecting those drops of water on the mirror? That's what the mind is most naturally doing in that moment. And that's what I'd like to propose is possible for us if we think, oh, I'm too sleepy to be mindful, too sleepy to meditate. See if you can know the experience of sleepiness or dullness or thickness of mind, low energy. These states of fogginess, of dullness, of sleepiness, they're a... um, They're kind of vague. There was a question this morning in the hall about vague experience. And uh, exploring things like sleepiness and dullness begins to give us a sense of what it means to meet vague experience. Another way to to explore or think about this is if if it's really foggy outside, there was some fog here the other day, and, you know, looking out at the fog... um, You know, you're not going to be able to see the trees clearly, or maybe even at all if it's a really thick fog. But the fog is there. You can't point, and you can know the fog. The eye, we can know that. It's not precise. We can't point at it and say, that's the fog. We can't point at that and, know, and say that. It's, it's more vague, it's more diffuse. This might be similar in the experience of hearing, of, of, a, of a kind of a, a static noise in the background that you can't just point at and say, oh, that's that noise. It's more of a diffuse sound. And then sometimes there are specific sounds, like a cough or a sneeze. But that vague, diffuse sound, even the sound of the the amplifier, you know. It's, it's a broader kind of sound. And so this uh, sleepiness, dullness, are kind of a more vague kind of experience. We know them, but we can't point at it and say that's what it is. This uh, exploration of recognizing um, vague states is a is is a, um, a very helpful direction in our practice. There's a lot of experience that happens as our practice deepens and unfolds that's not very precise and not very specific. And if we're constantly wanting things to be precise and specific, we are going to miss huge areas of our experience. And in my own practice, this exploration around low energy, dull mind has been a great learning around this exploration of being with these broad or vague states of mind. Restlessness. It's also a vague or more broader state of, of, of body or mind. There, there can be um, both physical restlessness, which can be experienced as like jumpiness in the body, 
almost like there's jumping beans under the skin, a, a state of agitation in the body. And there's a mental side of it too, uh, the, the, the experience of the mind that just feels like it's swirling or spinning or not particularly wanting to land anywhere or just landing uh, on one thing and then another and then another and then another. And so again, we can open to what's the experience of restlessness itself. One of the uh, explorations, much like sleepiness, I think is broadening to the, the, the vaguer side of it. Rather than trying to pin it down and saying, what are all these sensations in the body? It's more just let the, let the awareness get broad and don't buy to try to be so precise about knowing the restlessness. Don't try to know every little thing the mind is landing on. Just have a sense of the spinning energy or the, the, the experience of restlessness in the body. Just stepping back. I, I sometimes have the feeling of, with restlessness, it's like almost allowing the awareness to expand rather than feeling like I'm holding it in here. It feels like a pressure cooker with restlessness if we're trying to just observe inside the body. But if we allow the awareness to get as big as the room or to expand into space, into the vastness, let the restlessness get as big as that. It can be a little scary to think about that, but when the restlessness has more room, it's it's kind of like the, the, sometimes people talk about the analogy of of giving a wild horse a a bigger pasture to run in rather than this tiny little pasture you know it's it's kind of running up against the fi- fence every two steps give it a larger pasture so a sense of uh, giving the mind space when there's restlessness It can be helpful to, uh, again, if it's not so easy to be with the restlessness, to use some antidotes, you know, find some ways to, uh, uh, sometimes a faster walk can be helpful, or opening the eyes, or um, getting into nature, feeling the breeze, uh, just, just putting yourself in a different, a different um, situation. Being outside can often support uh, the mind when... It's restless. And then there's doubt, the fifth of the hindrances. Last night, Greg, wasn't last night, it was two nights ago, Greg talked about... um, faith quite a bit and doubt is kind of the flip side of faith we have doubts in in ourselves and our ability to do the practice we have doubts in the teachings doubts in the practice itself doubts in about the teachers the uh, description of doubt in the suttas is one of wavering uh, the Buddha says, doubt is kind of like you're lost in a desert. You take a couple steps this way and think, that can't be right. And go back, take a couple steps that way. Oh, that can't be right. It's got that quality of wavering, a feeling of wavering. 
The mind can't decide what to do. It spins often in logical arguments about what we should do or think what would be the best thing to do. You know, sometimes doubt can sound very wise. Oh, I should do this. Oh, this isn't a good thing to do right now. In terms of um, familiarity with doubt, doubt often comes about or we recognize doubt, we can begin to recognize doubt because of the kinds of thoughts that are happening in our minds. It can manifest as thoughts about the practice. I can't do this. What good is this? I should do another practice. What do these teachers know? How does what the Buddha said 2,600 years ago have anything to do with my life now? Those kinds of thoughts, if you find yourself thinking about the practice, it may be, find yourself thinking about the practice in a way that's taking you away from the practice because sometimes we find that practice thoughts arise and, and they actually bring us into the present moment. But if thoughts about the practice, in particular thoughts, things like, I can't do this, or what good is this practice, or maybe I should try this practice, oh no, not that one, oh, maybe I should try, oh, this one, no, no, maybe that one would be better. If we find ourselves thinking thoughts about the practice, it might be doubt. Recognizing doubt is the most powerful tool with doubt, because doubt basically takes us pretty far from presence of mind. Often with the other hindrances, there's some measure of um, awareness about them. We know we're averse. We know that we want something. There's some measure of awareness in, in, in the sleepiness. Or I know I, I'm too sleepy to meditate. There's some measure of, of awareness possible there. With doubt, often we are kind of removed from even the possibility for awareness because we are so caught in that story. And so the recognition of the story, the recognition that doubt is happening, is the biggest um, support for us. When we can notice, oh yes, these are doubting thoughts. That's, that's That's kind of a first step. And then what I found the next step, the the next thing that's helpful is not just to recognize um, doubt is happening, which can be very helpful. And sometimes when doubt is seen, it kind of goes away. And, you know, sometimes that's all that's needed is to turn the light of awareness and mindfulness on to doubt. And and then there's, it's like the doubt just withers in the clarity of the light of mindfulness. Sometimes that happens. But sometimes the doubt is related to a deeper question, a deeper feeling of hmm, worthiness. I've had, I've had doubt related to feelings of vulnerability, feelings of inadequacy, feelings of failure, fear of failure, fear of the unknown, different, different kinds of um, kind of almost emotional tones underneath that, I can't do this, I'm a failure, what do the teachers know? So when I recognize those thoughts, it's like, okay, doubt's happening. What does doubt feel like? Sometimes doubt feels like grief. Sometimes doubt feels like fear. 
And when we can then be present for that, we're back. We're there. We're, we're, we're mindful again. We can explore what does it mean to be present with grief? What does it mean to be present with fear? And so, mostly I hope that this exploration around the hindrances has given you some interest, curiosity about exploring these states of mind. When the hindrances are arising, they are our path meeting them, being with them, opening to what's there. Wisdom can grow, can arise. I used to believe that being mindful of the hindrances was kind of second-class practice. The real practice would begin when I was completely free of hindrances. And... At one point, on one long retreat, I was looking at self-hatred quite a bit. I I call it my self-hatred retreat. It was a three-month course. (laughs) And I spent a lot of time looking at self-hatred. And at first it was, you know, this feeling of it being a lesser practice. And, you know, and at at some point I felt like, okay, well, I guess this is my self-hatred retreat. There was a little bit of surrendering to it. It still had some judgment to it. But at least I, at that point, started to be more interested in, in investigating it and curious about it and watching, just being, being willing to witness it. I learned so much during that retreat about the conditions that put it together, the beliefs that were in the mind. And then at one moment on that retreat, just watching it, very rapidly, just little flits of self-hatred coming up in the mind while I was doing a late night sitting. I was just noticing it. Oh, there it is. And I was using a, a, a practice that, that Joseph had suggested. You know, as soon as I noticed it, I would, I would recognize it and know contact unpleasant. Contact unpleasant. So I was, I was just recognizing the very moment of the arising of self-hatred. And watching that in one moment... The, the mind saw the arising and recognized in that moment very clearly, not, not as a reflection, but seeing in the moment, this is just a thought. It has no basis in anything. It's constructed in the mind. It is a construct. And in that moment, seeing that self-hatred was a construct, the mind flipped from self-hatred to bliss. For a split second, the mind went to, oh, I'll never feel self-hatred again. (laughs) And then there was a recognition, no, actually that moment of understanding was that moment's understanding. And so the, the mind moved into a more of a balance of equanimity after that. That moment of understanding didn't get rid of the self-hatred forever. But it deeply 
It was a deep understanding into the nature of self-hatred as a belief in the mind. And that that belief was undermined very deeply in that moment. Not only seeing something about how self-hatred works, but how, how belief works, how the mind congeals a sense of self around it. Right in the midst of seeing self-hatred, very deep understanding, anicca, impermanence, dukkha, suffering, and anatta, not self. While watching self-hatred. That moment was important for me because at that moment I, I realized, wow, you know, I don't, it doesn't have to be that the self-hatred is gone for, for the practice to really have deepening, for there to be deep understanding. And so these, these hindrances are the path when they're arising. It's not lesser practice. So much of our minds are caught by this kind of state in our lives. And learning skills to be curious about them will serve you not only here, but in your life. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.